All right, what is up? And welcome back to another episode of the Practical Planner Podcast. I am Thomas Kopelman, co-founder of All Street Wealth, and I'm here with Ann Rhodes, Chief Legal Officer of Wealth.com. And glad to be back here with you, learning some estate planning. Yes, always a pleasure, Thomas. What do you have for us today? <laughs> I'm really excited. I think um, one of the common ones, and I think honestly, a big reason why Wealth.com is so valuable is that people just get estate plans done. They get their trust set up. They get their will set up but they never update it, right? Like I, I will say I have now worked with hundreds of clients. I've had, first of all, three people have their estate plan done when they came into me, which is kind of baffling. And two of them are attorneys. So really one person who's not an attorney and one of them who was has one kid on there and they have four, right? So it's like, <laughs> even though they get it done, it's not necessarily reflective of their true life now. And so I think a really important conversation, if we know that financial advisors are kind of that point of contact to push people into doing their estate planning, I think advisors have to know what those points are to help push their clients into doing this. So my goal of today's episode is really to dive into those main times in life where an estate plan needs to be updated. I think that, you know, the rule of thumb, and of course, you know, we estate planners, gave that rule of thumb. So it, it may seem like it's uh, the it's too frequent, but we used to say you should really look at your estate plan every two years and think about at least updating it, like for real, like redoing the thing uh, every five years. And so that's our rule of thumb right there. I love hearing that because in our client process, what we do is like in Q3, we meet with everybody and do insurance investments and estate planning review, but we flip them. So like every other year we do insurances, every other year we do the estate planning. So it's good to hear that that's kind of the cadence that you guys would recommend. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, one practice pointer here, because this is called the practical planner at the end of the day, is don't forget not only to review the estate planning documents, which are like, you know, the will or the trust, but actually also beneficiary designations. So we'll have an episode about that as well, because it becomes part of that comprehensive review of where all the assets go. But I love that you said life insurance, because that has beneficiary designations on it too. Yeah. And that's actually, a, I just have a new full-time hire starting and he's going through our financial planning software right now, looking at everybody's insurance statements, getting all the beneficiary things filled out because that's one thing that I want to get really good at. I think it's an easy thing when you're a financial planner to be like, there are more important parts, right? Like obviously making sure where your assets go is important, but like your cash flow and your investment planning and your tax plan, like those are like top of mind, add the most value and more fun to talk about. So it's easy to forget about like, hey, you know, you didn't have any kids before and now you have a couple or hey, you know, you have no contingent beneficiaries on any of your accounts. Like we were just looking this week, that was one of the projects I gave him. And we realized like 75% of our clients did not have a contingent beneficiary on any of them. They just had spouse and it ends right there. It's like, you know, you don't want to go morbid, but like some, one of my cousins in my family, like both her parents passed away when they were, she was like 14. Right. And like this would be an issue that would not be fun to deal with that financial planners. We could just help avoid by simple just bringing up the conversation and why that's valuable. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Thomas, and um, it's easy sometimes to think, oh, well, does this really have to do with me? It's upon death. Like, you know, I don't, but it, 
you are bringing value by thinking through those things, because if you're not thinking about them, who is, you know, like your client needs you for that reason to bring up some of these points. And so, um, yes, I, I love that cadence that you've established. Um, okay, cool. So let's hop into some of the times in life where this makes sense. Big life milestones that have been reached. Um, marital status. Let's start there, right? So a client getting married, getting separated, getting divorced, all of those things will affect the estate plan, particularly because spouses tend to have default rights over that um, client's assets uh, if the client passes away under law. And so this changes a little bit based on the state where they live. But, um, you know, I'll just give you an example, I guess. Uh, Georgia has actually the least (laughs) amount of rights for a surviving spouse. But some states will say, well, at least the spouse has a right to the marital homestead, right? Like where you live so that spouse doesn't end up on the street. Mm -hmm. Um, Some other states like New York will have an elective share so that uh, they have basically, you know, a third of the uh, assets at their disposal if they choose to exercise it. So if you have a client who gives less than a third to their spouse, then why would the spouse not just say, I'm going to exercise my elective share right here, you know, and get everything in my own name. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, you know, those types of um, the marital status changing is huge. Yeah. Yep. And then as you pointed out, kids, kids change a lot for people. Um, Partly because before you had kids, you know, you might have thought, well, my spouse is fine on their own. They are able to, you know, earn money for themselves. So I have other beneficiaries that I'm thinking of. But once you have kids, then how you think about who your dependents are changes completely. And you're also thinking about guardianship and that's huge for people. Yeah, that's the right? big one that stands out to me, right? Like every time that that's my selling point to, to clients. When, when we're talking about this, they're like, do your state plan done? They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, do you realize if something happened to you, like there would be the court would decide who takes care of your kids. And they're like, mm, you know, yeah. the parent card I get, it. I love my kids. I'll do that, I guess. Exactly. So there are three big things to look out for when you have younger kids, Number one is, do they have a guardian in mind? Ideally with a backup guardian as well, because sometimes people don't want the responsibility Mm -hmm. of taking care of your kids. And especially if your client is not prepared to have a conversation with the person they named, at least have a backup. That's the the big recommendation there though I have is like, please make sure when you do this, that you alert the people that that is there. Like you don't want all of a sudden, like they didn't think about this. All of a sudden something happened to you and they're like, I have your four kids. Like, I don't know about that. I will tell you, Thomas, like there are a lot of rom-coms out there with that plot line. So we don't want to reduce the number of people who fall in love because they end up with your four kids. But but anyway, so yes, the guardianship number two is having an estate plan where that builds out a sub-trust, an irrevocable trust um, that will give a more powerful vehicle for whoever is going to be in charge of the money for your kids to continue controlling that money. And I keep saying your kids, but it's really the client's kids, right? So um, so think about having the trust for descendant or trust for a child uh, built into the will or the trust that your client has. And then um, the third thing that is very important as well is just making sure that you have a plan of action for um, you know, the, the retirement benefits. So, and the beneficiary designations. 
So basically what often happens with your clients who just have kids is they have existing, you know, accounts and they may have designated parents or spouses, but not thought to designate the child. And the beneficiary designation doesn't update automatically just because you have kids now. And so I was one of those people who a few years back, you know, my daughter's two, and I just went through, you know, my fidelity login, et cetera, et cetera, and just like changed all of those from my parents to my child. And a lot of people just have spouse, right? And again, we're going back to this contingent yeah. beneficiary side, right? Like make yeah. sure that flows through the way, the right way that you want. Yeah. And for retirement accounts, I will say we can talk in a later episode about who to name, like what's the best practice there. Uh, maybe your client's considering like, hey, instead of naming my spouse, I should just name my kids outright. There are actually some tax implications about that. So we can talk about that later. So kids is another one. What other times in life? Big moves. And this is in particular moves across state lines or to other countries, right? So anytime where you're crossing into a new ju jurisdiction or your client has crossed into a new jurisdiction, you should update that estate plan. And can we go into why? I, I actually was posting yeah. about this and I was posting about a feature of wealth being like, Hey, the, the API to Zillow, they sell the house. You know, we proactively reach out and say like, did you move to a different state? If so, we need to update your state plan. But I've had people challenge that, that like, oh, it's not that big of a deal what state that you live in. Like you, you still have an estate plan. The baseline is you should keep your existing estate plan. <laughs> so what those commentators are probably referring to is, let's say I am in California, but because of the state income taxes here, as many of my friends ended up doing, you know, I'm moving to Washington or Florida um, because, yes, it's it's friendlier to my um, my pocketbook. And so yeah. if you make that move and you pass away with a California document in one of these other states, that other state is going to still, you know, put in place the things that you wanted. However, they're not optimized for that state. So all of a sudden, if there's a question of interpretation, like, what does, you know, the law say they'd have to like this Washington court or this Texas court may have to come to a California court and say, what does your law actually mean about this thing? Which by the way, means that the costs are going up for your beneficiaries or your executor to like figure out what your plan meant. The other thing that happens is you may not take into account certain features that are different about the state regarding default rights of your spouse. So again, right? Like think about the fact that you could be moving from, I don't know, Georgia to New York. And all of a sudden, like in your old plan, you gave less to your spouse thinking, oh, my spouse is independently wealthy or whatever. But by moving to New York, all of a sudden your plan doesn't take into account the, the fact that your spouse has new default rights under the new state's laws. Another typical example is community property versus non-community property, or what we call common law states. If these terms don't sound familiar to you. We're going to have a whole episode, you know, dedicated to kind of unraveling some of these terms. But basically, certain states, particularly like the West, uh, are what's known as community property states. And uh, it's like this old school way from like French law or Spanish law, uh, European law <laughs> comes here. Um, and this is where if you are married and you acquire assets or you earn money during your marriage, then you are considered to have an undivided interest with your spouse. 
uh, over that asset. So both of you need to control the asset together. And that's community property, you're saying? Community property, exactly. So California, Washington, Texas are community property states. And then like the rest of the states in the nation are by default common law states, which is from English law. And this is where the title on the asset really matters. Uh, and it, like whether it was earned by a spouse during marriage is a little less important, um, but it's the titling. So, so all of a sudden, like the titling of assets, the way you've earned the assets could have a huge effect on what you get to pass away versus what ends up being in the hands of your spouse at your death. So let's take a typical example because I'm sure, you know, some people are a little confused now. Um, this is my favorite example. So I own wealth.com stock, right? I'm in a younger company. This is part of my compensation. I live in California and my stock options are titled in only my name. That's a titling on them. It's just Ann Rhodes, you know, my company issues them to me. But because I'm married right now and I'm earning that stock with my efforts, my husband has a right to control my stock options by default law, which is crazy for people to think about, right? But actually that's true under community property. So if I die, half of my wealth stock will go through my will or my trust, but the other half actually ends up in his hands. Whereas if I were to pass away in New York, that's not necessarily true because New York is not a community property state. Exactly. They're looking at, oh, well, this is Anne's asset. So Anne's will gets to, you know, determine where that goes. So in the first situation, what you're saying is if your titling said, all that goes to my dad or whatever, they say, well, you know, that doesn't really matter. Half goes here. The other half goes here at most. Exactly. So if my will said 100% of everything I own goes to my dad, Michael in California, my husband would be like, wait a minute half of that wealth stock is actually already mine because it's community property. Whereas probably in New York, I mean, it depends a little bit on how we own our assets, but yes, all of that could potentially go to my father. That's a huge difference. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. What, what other times in life do we have? So we got kids, we have moving between different states, marriage. What are the yes. other ones? I'm going to talk about a couple of factors that are like seen as a little bit more like kind of negative, but impact your estate plan for sure. Right. And so the first is death and it's the death of people you've named in your plan or that your client has named in their plan. Right. So it's either um, decision makers and there it's actually also about age, right? Like, like my dad doing mine, but eventually my dad's going to be 92 and not going to be able to read the documents. I need someone. Exactly. And for sure, at the point in time where somebody has passed away, like they should probably not be named in that document anymore. So then that that is one. It's also about the beneficiaries passing away. You know, nobody ever wants to think about this, but like children or whoever you named as your first level, like at the point in time where that has happened, that person is probably thinking so differently about their lives, honestly, like, especially if it's the death of a child that uh, you just want to make sure that, you know, they're thinking about their estate plan as well. So a little bit more, you know, um, sadder circumstances. The other is that you just don't get along or the client doesn't get along with yeah. the, the people they've named. So think about, you know, uh, 
people they want to disinherit or people like a, a sibling relationship that has soured and so they don't trust them to be executors anymore. And so that's the type of thing where like, unless you have the estate plan to review with them, like your client may not even volunteer that information, particularly the kind of like sadder moments and the more tense moments in their lives. But you as a financial advisor, through just simply reviewing the estate plan, you do not need to ask that question specifically, can pick up on some of those cues from your client that like yeah. things have changed in their life. And maybe it's just, you know, you have the visualizer look, you show people and like, hey, is this still how you want it to be, right? Like, is it, you're right. It's hard to have that conversation. Like, you still friends with Johnny? Are you still friends with this? Like, you maybe <laughs> review that, be like, here's how your estate plan looks. This was done five years ago is this still the way that you want? And I think that's actually a really interesting point that I don't think about often. Like I, my mind, and I'm sure all financial planners, mind goes to financial events, like marriage is financial event, like kids happen, like those are there, but I don't often think about the like, Hey, you know, maybe who's taking care of your kids in your estate plan is your sibling. And maybe you and your sibling don't get along anymore. And that's not the best case. Like those are really important things to review that I think we probably do. We don't bring up as often as we should. And then to kind of bring it back to like a lighter <laughs> mood, um, uh, something a little bit more positive is actually your clients having children who are becoming more responsible who are becoming older. And I'm not talking about just like, oh, they've become 18. There's like a couple of points to be made about uh, children becoming adults. But this is really talking about like, you know, that cycle of life um, where their trusted people become slightly different, particularly with kids becoming older. You can start thinking about a couple of things, right? Uh, starting to name those kids as trusted decision makers, the executors, the trustees, right? Like maybe the eldest child, right? That's a stereotypical example, but like can step into that role. They can maybe even become guardians for their younger siblings because at the end of the day, like I think parents always are struggling with like nobody in their families are ever perfect uh, for raising the the uh, their own children. But actually, older siblings at a certain point, like parents are like, yeah, if something happened to me, like I'd want you know my eldest child to take care of the younger kids. And then also start thinking about removing some of those restrictions that are around control, right? So a typical example here is it's not the best thing to name a trust as the um, beneficiary of a retirement account if it's inherited, you know, uh, because of income tax reasons. And again, in a later episode, we'll talk about that. But as you're that child ages, then all of a sudden, you know, the control reason for having the trust recedes. And instead you're thinking, oh, the income tax advantages of naming somebody outright become stronger. And that that child should just inherit all the retirement accounts outright. And so changing the retirement account uh, de designations to remove trusts and put the kid in their own names on the form is a good idea. Yeah. Those are super good ones. Those make a lot of sense. What, what else do we have? Any other times that come to your mind? So one that comes up quite often is, you know, liquidity events or some, you know, winning a lottery, some really huge, you know, um, net worth jump and actually net worth decrease too, but we can talk about that later. Um, but like a change in net worth, um, 
So here, what I would say is, well, for sure, that person should just update their estate plan because all of a sudden the gifts that they were making before, they might be thinking about them a little bit differently, right? So if you've like come into a lot of money uh, that, you know, a couple of thousand dollars, you might want to make more specific gifts to like charity. You might think more broadly, you know, about who your beneficiaries are because you have more assets. Um, So that's something to think about. But it's also to do more tax planning. So if you're getting to the point where, you know, that client's net worth is, is really, you know, undergone a significant change, then you want to think about doing the subtrusts that are going to create family piggy banks, you know, that credit shelter trust um, to do some of that tax planning for your client. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, we work with a bunch of people who are like, you know, three years ago, their business was worth zero and now they're doing 20 plus million and the valuation is you know, around there and you're like, okay, well, you know, your will that you got put in place a couple of years ago probably needs to add in a few changes, some trust, you know, all of that type of stuff. So that makes a lot of sense. And a lot of people also hate talking about this, but you could also have a change in that worth in the other direction where somebody, you know, went bankrupt or who knows, you know, huge judgment against them, like a big creditor issue. And there it's definitely definitely worthwhile to look at the estate plan because that person may be making gifts that they can't afford to make anymore. So like a perfect example of this is, you know, if you have a client who was thinking of making like, oh, you know, like a $10,000 gift to charity and then the rest to my spouse, let's just say very simple. If they're worth less than 10,000 at the moment they pass away, then their spouse may receive literally nothing because of it. Um, because specific gifts, and this is just a term of art, you know, like a concept, uh, for the audience to know is that those specific gifts of like cash, you know, real estate, whatever it is, they take precedence over the remainder. So the remainder is like what's left behind. And a lot of good, I mean, good planning usually is, you know, leave the remainder should be what it sounds like, which is the bulk of your assets but your specific gifts could completely reduce that remainder down to zero. Hmm. And so all of a sudden, you know, reviewing those specific gifts with that client are very important. And then of course, you know, asset protection planning, maybe, you know, there are all sorts of things there that um, can make it more complex. Perfect. I think the only other one that I could think of is I think when you start a business is another good time to probably go update your estate plan too. That's right. And you should have a succession plan for your business, which then becomes this interesting, like these puzzle pieces that need to be fit together. Your estate plan, it also covers your personal assets, right? And like is the default, but your business plan, meaning, or like your your legal documentation for your business. So like bylaws, LLC agreements, whatever else, that needs to be coordinated with your estate plan. So that way there are certain like rights over the interests, the stock options that you have, whatever it may be. That, that also may pass, you know, in a different route if you uh, pass away. Love it. Super good. And thanks again for always hopping on with me. I think this was a, another super valuable episode for advisors. And I think for advisors listening, it, give, it gives us a lot of um, good things to take away and understand and bring into client conversations every single year or every other year, how the estate planners recommend just to make sure that everything is still coordinating together, right? I mean, that's like the biggest complaint I hear from everybody I work with is like, we have all these professionals, nothing's coordinated. And I feel like it is our job to make sure that things are continuing to be updated and stay coordinated. Exactly. So thanks for the time and everybody, thank you for listening. Please rate, subscribe, and we'll see you back next week. 